Park Terrace this morning. It seemed very strange not to see uh, Charlie, my friend there. He's now with the Lord. And of course, it also seems strange to be at uh, First Baptist Fort Crane and not see Pastor Dan Baker. But uh, I'm glad to see that you're in good hands and God's been blessing and you're holding together and moving on for the glory of God. That's a I think the last time I was here, you were replacing the bell or belfry. And I think that's been accomplished, it looks like anyway. And uh, I think you were voting that night. I'm not sure if that's the time frame or not. Uh, I turned uh, 71 in January. I, I still am a little bit in shock about that. I thought it would take a lot longer to get this old. I really did. But uh, God has a way of doing that. I, I did want to mention Wendy, our daughter. Uh, Wendy Patton and her family have transitioned. They moved in April from, they were in Spain. They moved to uh, uh, the States for a few few months. And then in uh, April, they moved to Peru, Iquitos, Peru. That's where uh, John Patton grew up. And uh, his brother has served there for a lot of years. His parents served there before that. They asked, uh, Andy asked John to come and help them with the Bible Institute and help in some of the area churches, and that's what they're doing. It's Iquitos is way, way up in Peru. You cannot get there by car or truck. You have to fly in or you have to come by boat. Now, I'm thinking a jungle, and as they're describing this, a little village, this kind of small city perhaps, 600,000 people live. In Iquitos, that's a big place. Wendy uh, just took a mission trip to help with a vacation Bible school. They went down river and actually visited two villages. The one village, in particular, uh, in fact, I think it was all the same village, but different parts of it. And uh, she's describing it. And I'm thinking, you know, uh, this is a real jungle missionary kind of story. You know, I wondered if she had a pith helmet and the whole works and uh, thatched roof houses and all of that. And she mentioned that there were 10,000 people living in this village. So it's a big, big area. And uh, God's been blessing. It's been a good transition for them. They're doing well. And the girls are doing well. Uh, they don't like the heat. It does get warm down there. So we'll see how that goes. But anyway, God's been good, and we're thankful for that. I mentioned uh, I, when, you, when you get to be my age, you start uh, looking at projects in your life that you haven't finished yet. And you realize you don't have a lot of time to do it. So I started, uh, I started a doctor of ministry program years ago. When I moved to New York, I had finished all of the classwork for it, but had not finished the major project. I had submitted it. It had to be revised, rewritten. I got busy. I never got back to it. And it's just one of those things that just sat in language all these years. And once you've gone that far, it's over. You can't do anything with it at all. And then um, Larry Oates from Maranatha Baptist University came to our, our um, teacher's conference. And I got to talk with him. And he said, well, if you've done the classwork, if you'll take two classes in our new DMIN program, write your thesis, we'll give you the degree. So this year I have finished two classes. Now I'm going to start the project this year and Lord willing, finish it. Next year, uh, Lord willing, 50 years after I graduated Maranatha, I'll be getting my, another degree from Maranatha Baptist University. Also, the Barb and I 50th anniversary, so that's special. My granddaughter uh, called the other night. She, her boyfriend just asked her to marry her, uh, him, and they are going to be uh, uh, married sometime next year. I have a grandson also talking about getting married. He's graduating from college. I have a granddaughter graduating from high school, 
And so it could be a busy year next year. I think it's going to be kind of keeping us going. I Before I start the, the message, which was part of the project uh, that I did for the, one of my classes this year, I wanted to mention some of the things that are going on in New York State. We have had a rough year in New York State. If you're not aware of that, you haven't been paying much attention. Uh, Governor Cuomo promised the most progressive agenda, most aggressive progressive agenda in New York State history. And he's been delivering that. Uh, day one, as soon as the legislature got back in town, they started working on the Reproductive Health Act. They passed that in short time. They passed the agenda, the bathroom bill that we call that uh, says you can't discriminate against people because of their gender, gender expression. They passed an anti-counseling uh, bill uh, that says you cannot try to, a professional counselor cannot try to change the sexual orientation of a minor, uh, putting limits on what a counselor can and cannot do or treat. Uh, they passed all kinds of different things. The same time they were doing all that, they found pity on cats and said you could no longer declaw cats. The governor signing the bill, same governor that signed the Reproductive Health Act that says a woman can have her doctor tear her baby apart inside the womb, said it's a cruel and unusual thing to do to a cat to declaw it. Somehow, I think we have our priorities mixed up a little bit. There are some serious problems. First class I took, uh, by the way, there's literature on the table. I don't want to forget that. There's, I think, 22 different uh, pamphlets right now. Uh, you're welcome to them. They're all free. Also, I send out a newsletter once a week called Arise, and you're welcome to sign up for that. It's only available by email. There are two pastors that I've mailed it to weekly. One was Charlie, and the other is uh, another pastor who's old and does not have email and won't get it. So uh, they're the only two that get it that way. Otherwise, it's just sent out by email, and uh, it'll keep you up to date a little bit on what's going on in our ministry, a little bit what's going up on, going on in Albany, and also I try to keep a little bit up what's going on in Washington, although that's kind of a whirlwind. Uh, things have been really popping over there as well. So anyway, the assignment in the first class I took was to preach four messages on one of the Baptist distinctives. And I actually cheated a little bit. I took two. One was religious liberty and the other is separation of church and state. The two of them really tie together. You can't really talk about one without talking about the other. And it fits into my ministry. And I thought it'd be good for me to share that tonight with you. If we get this to turn. Whoops, wrong button. What am I doing wrong, preacher? I get a monitor back there. looks like you're the red button came on, so it's on. What? There we go. All right. Different buttons work a little bit differently. We'll see how it works. And if it doesn't, he can help me back there. These are the Baptist distinctives. You'll see these written in different ways. Barbara and I have, a uh, in our new house, put out a bird feeder. Barb's mom loves to watch birds, and she lives with us now, so... Uh, we thought it'd be a good thing to, you know, have a bird feeder. We have a large picture window, and it's a night right from our living room. You can look out and watch the birds. And I have been learning a lot about birds in the last year. Uh, for instance, I, I've learned there's all kinds of varieties of birds. Uh, we've had as many as seven pairs of cardinals at one time feeding during the winter time. We have starlings. We have uh, blue jays. We have finches, yellow finches, purple finches. We have uh, black-eyed juncos. I didn't even know there was such a thing, I, you know. But my 
the gal that helps us with Barb's mom three days a week, uh, a bird person, and she tell, oh, that's a black eye. Oh, yeah, I could see that. We've had three or four different varieties of woodpeckers, all kinds of things. How do you, how do you tell one bird from another bird? Well, you look at characteristics. Uh, you look at distinctives. If it's red, it's not a blue jay. Okay. Now, that's about the extent of what I know. Well, I do know that if it's blue, it's not a cardinal. Okay. How do you tell whether a church is a Baptist church or not? Well, you look at the distinctives, the characteristics. What do they believe? Now, we're not the only groups that believe some of these things. But Baptists are the only group that believes all of these things. So these are the Baptist distinctives. You'll see them written slightly different ways. And different. And in fact, they used to use, memorize a different one. Uh, Maranatha uses a different one than this. But here's, here's what I would consider the Baptist distinctives. Number one, the Bible's sole authority for faith and practice. This is our authority. This is the most basic Baptist distinctive. We believe what we believe because of what the Bible says. Particularly the New Testament. We are New Testament Christians. That's our authority. Secondly, the autonomy of the local church. We believe that the church is self-supporting, self-governing, and self-propagating. That is, it supports itself. If you have financial trouble, you can't appeal to a denomination to help you. You're on your own. You have the Lord's help. But you're also self-governing. You don't have to ask permission to start a new ministry, for instance. You don't have to go through authority. We believe in the autonomy of the local church. Self-propagating, that's why you believe in missions. That's why we support missions. Baptist churches are mission-minded churches. P is the priesthood of the believer. That is, we believe we have the right to go directly to God in prayer. That you can read the Bible and understand it for yourself. You don't need a priest. When I was 13 years old, I visited my great-grandmother and her daughter, my great-aunt, who was a nun. The aunt was a nun. They, uh, I stayed with them a couple of days, and one day they got out their prayer books, and they were going to do their little ritual in front of their little statue of Mary in the hallworks. And I said, well, I think I'll just go out on the porch and read my Bible. They were absolutely horrified. That book is not for you. That's for the priest to read. No, we believe the Bible is for everyone, that you can read it and understand it for yourself. I, I a T rather, I better spell this right. We believe in two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. I is individual soul liberty. That is, you're responsible for your salvation, your sanctification. You're responsible for that. Your service. You are individually responsible. I can't believe for you. Your parents can't believe for you. You're not a Baptist because your grandfather was. You have to believe yourself. Then we believed in... I'm looking down on the list of memorizing differently. Saved and baptized church membership. My teacher at Maranatha, believe in uh, my first degree, Dr. Richard Weeks, believed this was second to the Bible, the most important Baptist distinctive. We believe to be a member of a church, you have to give profession of faith in Jesus Christ to be baptized by immersion. That separates us from a lot of different denominations and groups. And then two offices, pastor and deacons. S is separation. Separation with a three, because there's three aspects of it. Separation of church and state, which I'm going to talk with you about tonight. Separation from the world. Certainly that's important. And then, eth uh, which is ethical separation. 
And then, of course, ecclesiastical separation, separation from churches that are apostate or no longer serving God. So let's talk about separation of church and state. What is it? What does it mean? God created three institutions for our good. The family, the state, and the church. Now, that's important because a lot of people have the idea that the state or government is in Satan's realm. Because he is called the prince and power of the air. But he's called the prince, not the king. He is the rebel prince. When he offered Jesus the kingdom of this world, he was a liar. The kingdoms of this world do not belong to him. And Jesus correctly responded to him because of his temptation was to, to, do, uh, to worship him instead of God. Family was created in Genesis chapter uh, 1 and 2. The state, Genesis chapter 9, whosoever sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For the image of God made he man. Chapter 13 gives us a biblical philosophy of government. It explains that government is ordained of God. The powers that be ordained of God gives us our responsibility as well as principles on how it should operate. And of course, the church was established in Acts chapter 2. Established by Christ in his ministry as an organization, Established as a living organization, uh, organism in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came to indwell. Now, let's talk about our convictions. What do we believe about the separation of church and state? If we were to put these three institutions in circles, we would find these responsibilities. The state, first of all, is responsible for certain things. The church is responsible for certain things. The family's responsible for certain things. Each one's been given their own individual responsibility. But you'll notice that the lines over or the circles overlap one another. What happens when the state takes over responsibility for the family? We end up with a nanny state. Welcome to New York. That's what's happening. That's where the conflict is today. The state is interfering with the family. It's also interfering with the church. That's why we have conflict. But ideally, all three of these institutions work, should work together for good. That's the sweet spot, as it's called in golf or baseball. Uh, that's where we want to be. That's our goal. The ultimate goal would be have that. And it will never really be fully realized, of course, until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to earth. We could look at some of these things individually. But let's uh, Matthew 22 is a popular passage that people use to talk about the separation of church and state. They'll say uh, Jesus was asked about the coin, remember? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That was the question. He asked them to pull out a coin. When they did, he said, well, whose image is on that? And they said, Caesar, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God. Jesus clearly limited government. Government is limited, but some every book I have in my library about this refers to the church there, but the church wasn't in view there. Where's <laughs> the church is is here is separated, but what has happened is we've gotten the notion that somehow separation of church and state means that state is not responsible to God. That's nonsense. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. What belongs to God? Everything does. Now, there's an application on the image. Whose image are you made in? 
you're made in the image and likeness of God. Caesar has no business dealing with the image of God in your life. It's Caesar is limited to the to the outward, to the material world. This is seen further in the Ten Commandments. At Romans 13 repeats some of them. Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. If there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the last five of the commandments. The first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God. The last five have to do with our relationship with one another. The bridge commandment has to do with the family. So we have these three institutions all playing together. Who's responsible for a relationship to God? Well, we are, but God, that's given to the church. The church is the one to proclaim the gospel and to help us have a relationship with God. The state is responsible to enforce the laws. The laws are things that how we relate to one another. It also is the foundation of our rights. Now, I see a lot of people that don't understand this or get this, but our basic rights are given by God. Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and have been endowed by the creator with certain unable rights. Among these rights are life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. These liberties are considered a gift of God. They're not given by the generosity of the state, but by the hand of God. John Kennedy said that in his inaugural address. We used to all know that. Well, that those principles, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's the sanctity of marriage. Thou shalt not kill. That's the sanctity of life. Thou shalt not bear false witness. That's the basis of having a fair trial. And you can go through the whole list and see how rights are related to the law of God. Our cat would love to go outside all the time. She cries at the door, but there's some danger outside. And we have a fence in the backyard, so we let her out in the backyard. But Barb and I have rocking chairs. Yeah, we got to that point. We rock on our porch. And uh, the cat, we don't have a fence in the front yard. And the cat loves to come out, so she cries wanting to come out. Barb will finally have pity on her, walk out, pick her up, carry her. And she, but she has to hold her. The cat feels restrained all the time. She's trying to push and get her. Finally, when she's, Barb's had enough, she's all right, that's it, you're warned. And she's getting so she stays a little longer, a little longer. But she doesn't realize the law is in place for her good, not her harm. God gave us his laws for our good. He gave us a state to help enforce those laws. Constitution was written. We, the people of the United States of America, lays out the principles of government and the government that we have. Uh, the preamble, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for the common defense, to promote the general welfare, and to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our prosperity, to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. That's our birth certificate. Have you read recently that the New York Times has decided to revise our history and say it no longer began on July 4th, 1776, but in August 2000, or 1619 when the first slaves came to America? And they're trying to rewrite history to say it's all about slavery. That's nonsense. It's also not the first time people have tried to rewrite history. They basically tried to erase God from our history. And that's been going on for some time. 
Edward Hitchcock wrote what is called the New Directory of, for Baptist Churches. Now, it's kind of an odd title in a couple of ways. First of all, it was written in the 19th century, so it's not very new. But he was a, a Baptist, and he felt there was a need to, to kind of give a book that would explain why we do as Baptists what we do. Uh, why, what is the practice? Now, the American Baptist Convention had the copyright on that, and they've revised it. So make sure you get the original version if you're looking up anything. But there are 10 propositions. Many of them had to do with religious freedom and the separation of church and state. In fact, most of them did. Here's what he said about civil government. Civil governments, rulers, magistrates, are to be respected, and in all matters temporal, not contrary to conscience and the word of God, to be obeyed. But they have no jurisdiction in spiritual concerns. They have no right to dictation or control over one's or interference of interference with matters of religion, but are bound to protect all good citizens in peaceful enjoyment of their religious rights and privileges. Now, that's, that's a statement not only about the separation of church and state. It's a, a statement about our belief. That is, you must be persuaded yourself to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. No one can do that for you. The government can't command it. You must believe. Uh, the family can't command that you believe. It has to come from your heart. I'm the director of the New York Association of Christian Schools, and one of my fears about Christian education is kids that will have it up here and never get it down here. Because it's not enough just to be able to spit out the truth. You have to believe in your heart. And school rules can't do that for you. Parents can't do that for you. You have to do that for yourself. Well, Islam doesn't believe that. They believe that you can force a person to become a Muslim. Well, you can force outward conformity, but you can't transform the human heart. It's simply not possible. Well, let's think about the history of church and state. They were intended to be separate but cooperative. But early church faced persecution from the state. Uh, the Romans believed in freedom of religion. Did you know that? The Roman Empire guaranteed religious freedom, except there was one little thing. And that is when you paid your taxes, you had to bow to an image of Caesar and say, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. You know, Caesar's still trying to get people to do that. That's what a lot of these excessive regulations and stuff are all about. Caesar is Lord. Christians said, we can't do that. We'll pay our taxes. We'll be good citizens. But Jesus is Lord. No one else. And as a result, they faced persecution. Emperor Constantine in 312 claimed to have had a vision. His kingdom was divided. There was civil war going on. Christians had pretty well become the majority in the Roman Empire. The early church turned their world upside down. And he had a vision, he said, of a cross in the sky and hearing the words with this sign conquer. And he became a Christian. Uh, he issued an edict giving Christians freedom in 13, uh, 313 A.D. And then later in that century, 380, the church and state and Roman Empire were declared together. They were one. So Rome officially became a Christian nation. But also it meant that if you're a Roman now, you're a Christian. But see, it doesn't work that way. 
And what happened was they merged paganism with Christianity, and you end up with basically what eventually became the Roman Catholic Church. That's how it came. So the two were merged. Uh, kings were anointed by the Pope and answerable to the Pope. The Pope claimed to have authority on heaven and earth and beneath the earth. It was a three-crown tier that was on his head, and they would crown Luther changed some of that. Martin Luther objected to the corruption of the Catholic Church, corruption of doctrine, and claimed to return back to grace by grace alone, by faith alone. That's what the solos are there. Uh, he started the, the Reformation, but in doing that, he didn't get rid of everything that he should have got rid of. One of them was he kept the church of state one. So he convinced the German princes to become followers or Lutherans or Protestants. So if you were born in Germany, you were a Lutheran. It was the state church, uh, again, corrupting the gospel. In England, it was a little different. Henry broke from the Catholic church and proclaimed himself to be the head of the church, the defender of the faith. He was followed by a series of successors. The Puritans were a group of Bible-believing Christians who wanted to purify the church, get rid of all the Roman doctrines that were not contrary or that were contrary to the Word of God. Uh, they passed a lot of reforms. When Mary came into power, she wanted to return the Church of England back to the Catholic Church, and she became known as Bloody Mary. She had a lot of, um, you know, the Protestants burnt at the stake. Uh, two of them were Hugh Lattimore and Nathan Ridley. Uh, you can read the quote there for yourself. As they said, we shall light a candle that shall never, never be extinguished. And certainly they did that. Elizabeth said the Church of England will be broad enough to have both Protestant and Catholics. And that's still basically the way it is. And James became king. The most important thing he did is he authorized one Bible translation, a unified Bible translation called the King James. That was his main contribution. But he also united England. By that time, though, Protestants were beginning to say, we've had enough. This church cannot be reformed. We've got to get out. Pilgrims sailed in 1620 for England. One of the people that helped fund that was a man by the name of Thomas Helwes. Thomas Helwes was a rich merchant that became a Christian and actually helped fund the pilgrims. But he also established the first Baptist church in England. He had been with John Smythe or Smith in Holland, established a Baptist church there, became dissatisfied with some things that Smythe was doing, came back to England and established what was really called the first uh, Baptist church. He wrote a book and sent it to King James, uh, telling him about the separation of church and state. Uh, James was not impressed, threw him in prison. That's where he ended up dying. But he's one of our forefathers. Puritan migration took place. Uh, multitudes, tens of thousands of Puritans came to America. And with that, they unfortunately brought some of their beliefs. For instance, in Massachusetts, these were laws. Uh, if you were uh, in, in Massachusetts in the early Puritan days, church attendance was required by law. Taxes were used to support the church, the clergy. Gambling, blasphemy, drunkenness, other things were punished severely. By 1640, a law specifically banned Baptists. Look what they called us. They said they were troublers of churches in all places. What was the trouble they were causing? They were saying, you've got to believe the book. 
And one of the conflicts was baptism by immersion. And as a result, they were persecuted in this country. There were leaders that God rose up. Here is one of them that was uh, Pastor Isaac Bacchus, who ministered there. He led the fight. You'll see some of the things. That's a book that he wrote saying, who can hear that Christ declare this kingdom is not of this world and yet believe that the blending of this church and state together could be pleasing to him. Who can believe that? Uh, basically, he said this has to be separate. In Rhode Island, Roger Williams, banned from Massachusetts, established a Baptist church. Along with him, a man by the name of John Clark, uh, the two men established Baptist churches in different locations in Rhode Island. Both churches claim to be the first Baptist church in America. Probably Williams is, has the, that claim is a little stronger than this one. But John Clark basically helped write the charter for Rhode Island Colony, and it is the first place on earth to guarantee religious freedom and separate church and state. That's a copy of it there. The Great Awakening had a big impact on America. An Anglican clergyman banned from churches in England preached in the fields with great success, made several evangelistic trips to America, and tens of thousands of people were saved. Uh, Whitfield one day complained, though, that many of his chickens, chicks, were becoming ducks, by which he was referring to Baptists. Uh, this was a time of great growth amongst Baptist churches because uh, they, when they started believing the Bible were saved, and they, they said, you know, infant baptism doesn't hold up. It just doesn't work. In Virginia, there was persecution of Baptists there as well. Uh, colonial laws required worship in an Anglican church. Parents were required to baptize their infants. Taxes were used to support the church and, and the church and clergy. A license was required to preach. Baptists said, "We are commissioned by God, not by the state." They refused to take licenses. As a result, they were persecuted. Uh, a lot of documentation on this, things that were done to Baptists. You can see, read it there. Some were dragged by the hair. Some were thrown and drowned. Some were uh, all kinds of things that happened to Baptists. Many were thrown in jail and kept preaching through the bars. And so they had to put them inside the jails deeper to have all kinds of problems. Several of our founding fathers were lawyers, young lawyers during those days. And they got their start practicing law by defending Baptist preachers. That's how they got started. One of them was James Madison. Madison, who's considered the father of our Constitution, uh, was probably one of the primary authors. He, he, he saw a horrible thing. He wrote to his friend in 1774. Remember, the war is getting ready to, to be quite intense. And he writes to a friend, and he says, there's troubling things happening in Virginia. And instead of talking about the British, he talks about persecution of Baptists. It bothered him. So... When uh, the war did come, Baptists were very enthusiastic defenders of American liberty, as you might expect. One third of all chaplains in the Continental Army were Baptist ministers. One of the more famous ones was John Ganto, who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in, ba in New York City. John Ganto was the personal chaplain of George Washington. When the news of the war ended, or had ended, uh, Washington turned to his chaplain and said, would you lead the, my officers in prayer? And there's a painting of him leading that prayer. Afterwards, of course, the country's got to come together. We've got to have a constitution. The big question is, what's going to happen with church and state? 
How are we going to balance these two in a fair way? Once they had the document, two groups arose, some opposed to it, the Anti-Federalists, and some for it, the Federalists. The Anti-Federalists included uh, George Mason, who wrote the Bill of Rights later on, uh, uh, Patrick Henry, who said, give me liberty or give me death. They were influential patriots, and it looked like it was a toss-up. Would it pass or not pass? One of the people that opposed it was a fellow by the name of John Leland, a popular Baptist preacher. When it came time to the convention in Virginia, the delegates were elected from their various areas. It looked like Leland was going to beat James Madison. That would be embarrassing not only to Madison, but it also would probably mean that the Constitution would not be ratified by Virginia. If that happened, we would not have the United States of America today. The two men met under an oak tree. And Madison said, what is it that you want? He said, I want a bill of rights. I want the guarantee of religious liberty. Madison said, if I promise to do that, will you drop your opposition and support my candidacy? Leland agreed. The two men shook hands. And Madison did indeed help write the Bill of Rights. This is a picture of Leland and one of the statements he made about separation of church and state. The outcome of that were the first 10 amendments, specifically the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution that says Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people to peacefully assemble or to petition the government for a redress of grievances. That's considered the First Amendment. Our first freedom is freedom of religion. Now, who's limited by this amendment? The church or the state? The state, the state is. See, but we live in a time when it's turned upside down. And people think somehow that the church has no say in what goes on in our world. That is not the case. So we're in a conflict today. What's the conflict? If I went back to that chart that showed you the three, three different institutions, I would show you why we have a conflict. Number one, I'm a part of all three institutions. I am a part of a family. I have responsibility. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I have responsibilities to my family. I have a mother-in-law that we're taking care of. I have responsibilities of family. But I also am a citizen of the United States of America and the state of New York. I have to pay taxes to support that critter. I am expected to obey its laws. Uh, I vote when I have opportunity to vote. But I also have a right to speak on the issues of our day. And I do. I'm also a part of a church. I'm commissioned. I'm a member of a church. I tie to a local church. I don't attend as much as I should. I attend every week at a local church, don't get me wrong, but I'm commissioned by that church to go and speak to other churches such as yours. So I have a responsibility in all three of those institutions. And there is some overlap, but what's, what's happening in our day? Well, this is, this is my favorite president, uh, Ronald Reagan. He, there are a lot of great quotes by Reagan. He says, I hope we all recognize the true meaning of the First Amendment. Its words were meant to guarantee freedom of religion to everyone. But I believe the First Amendment has been twisted to a point that freedom of religion 
is in danger of becoming freedom from religion. He's absolutely right. What are the dangers? The danger, first of all, of statism. Now, I'm not sure all of these are actually words. I couldn't find that one in a dictionary. But it is a philosophy that the state's going to take care of everything. See, we as a society have basically removed God from our schools and from our thinking and from our court. And as a result, we're looking to the state to save us. The government will say, we have a problem. For instance, there's a shooting a couple weeks ago. The government has to solve that. The government has to pass new laws because then they will then we'll do away with all those mass shootings. Not realizing that criminals don't really pay much attention to laws. That's why they're criminals. Although, we, you know, if San Francisco, uh, this new thing gets, catches on, uh, San Francisco, you may have read this last week, we're changing the name. Criminals are no longer going to be called criminals because that would hurt their self-image. <laughs> we're going to call them justice-involved individuals. That's a real story. See, but we've done this. We've done this with sin, haven't we? Drunkenness is now alcoholism. It's a sickness. Adultery is having an affair, a love affair. Homosexuality is not about lust. It's about love. No, that's nonsense. You know, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. A skunk would still stink, too. And that's kind of the way it is. But statism, we see the state trying to take over all kinds of authority. Prayer was removed, 1962. Bible reading for the public schools, 1963. Teaching of the Ten Commandments, or posting of the Ten Commandments, 1982. You get those kind of things going on. There's a danger of secularism. Instead of in God we trust, we're becoming a nation that believes in man we trust. Uh, we're, we're missing the point. The counsel of man cometh to naught, but the counsel of the Lord standeth forever. That's in Psalm 33. Then there's the danger of sexism. This is the collision course. It's probably going to be the first thing that you really see, and it's already been going on for some time. And that is homosexual rights and religious freedom rights. So the state now, and many courts are saying, religious freedom is fine inside your church. But if you open a business, then you give up your religious freedom. You can't practice your business according to your faith or live your life according to your faith. You have to keep it to yourself. In some parts of the world, they've banned trying to change somebody's faith. India, for instance, many states, it's against the law to try to witness to somebody that's of another faith. That's the kind of thing that's going on and happening. Homosexual rights, transgender rights, gay marriage, all of these things. Remember when they passed gay marriage, they said it wouldn't affect you as long as you're not involved to somebody. But now if you're a photographer, a baker recently, uh, you know, there's court cases on all these things that are taking place. Then there's been a rise in Satanism. Um, this is now a militant Islam. We see in India militant Hinduism. Churches are being burned. Christians are being persecuted around the world. There's also a rise in witchcraft, including in America. As soon as the president was elected, witches announced they would have a monthly meeting or mass, a black mass, calling for a curse upon the president of the United States. Friends, if, if they're praying against him, we need to be praying for him. 
and that is our responsibility. Here's a warning from Reagan again. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it on to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, handed on for them to, to do the same. Or one day, we will spend our days in our sunset years telling our children and grandchildren what it's once like to live in the United States where men were free. We're in a battle for freedom. The battle is raging. When Luther was facing total opposition from everyone, it seemed, he wrote the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In that, it said, if we in our own strength were confiding, our struggle would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The God of man's, God's own choosing. Ask who that might be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Jesus, we serve a risen Savior. I don't know what will happen in the battle for America, but I have read the last chapter in the book, and I can tell you it turns out good. We win. We win. Until then, Jesus said, occupy till I come. Heavenly Father, thank you for the heritage we have as Baptists and as Americans. And this is really the last bastion of religious liberty in the world. God, I pray that you'd help us to do our part to preserve it, to stand for what is right, to stand in opposition to government when it's wrong, but also to support it when it is right, and help us to have the wisdom to know the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor.